Welcome, and thank you for downloading Movement Christian Church's sermon podcast. Here at Movement, we are passionate about God's Word and helping each other move closer to God. Thank you for choosing to grow with us today. Good morning. How are you guys doing? Okay, all right, all right. You got to do that every once in a while just to feel it out, you know, see... See if it works. I don't know. Uh, it worked really well this morning for me. Uh, we are working uh, our way through the book of Second Timothy, and we have reached the fourth and final chapter of this book. Um, and so uh, if you want to open your Bibles, we're going to uh, start off in First Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And uh, you need to understand that Paul is winding down this letter. Um, but he's also, <laughs> in a way... <clears throat> winding down his life. Um, He says in verse 6, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. Paul knows, perhaps, that this imprisonment that he is suffering at the current time is not going to end in his release. And he knows that the time that he has left with Timothy and with us all, as he's writing to the churches, is limited. He only has a few words left to say. And so he ends this letter with a charge, a charge to Timothy uh, to be essentially unashamed, to preach the word in a way that he hoped that he was able to do as he lived his life. He says this in verse 1, I solemnly exhort you, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and exhort with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And they will turn away or turn their ears away from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But as for you, Timothy, as for you, use self-restraint in all things. Endure hardship and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Stephen reminded us at the beginning of this chapter that essentially one of the main points that Paul is trying to get across to Timothy is this. Ministry is hard. That goes for whether you're a preacher or, or, or whether you're a, a, a deacon or an elder or a servant or a teacher. Whatever it is that you do for Jesus Christ, there's going to be obstacles. There's going to be times when you're trying to explain the gospel to somebody who doesn't want to hear it. You're going to be trying to help someone who doesn't want your help. You're going to be trying to teach someone who doesn't want to be taught. And there's always going to be someone down the road who's willing to tickle the ears. There's always going to be somebody who's willing to say, oh, oh yes, absolutely, you're correct. Paul says, do the work of an evangelist. Do your job, Timothy. Get out there. And preach the word, whether that be in season or out of season. And we as Christians have to understand that, unfortunately, not everything that Jesus said is always very popular with people. 
There's quite a few things that Jesus said that caused some stir. The world disagrees with a lot of what Jesus taught and a lot of what Jesus said. And we have a choice to face when we're presented with those times. The question is, will you be ashamed of Jesus and what he said? Or will you preach the word in season or out of season? See, if you're going to live a life of ministry like Timothy, you got to be ready to lay aside that shame and commit to teaching the truth, whether it's popular or not. To illustrate this and to kind of help us understand what this looks like, I want us to turn over to John chapter 4. We'll be spending most of our time this morning in the book of John. We're going to tell a, a, a story about a woman. You've probably heard this story before if you've been in church. But I think there's something for us to learn here. In John chapter 4, verse 1, it says this. Therefore, when the Lord knew, that is Jesus, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And it says in verse 4, this is a key point, he had to pass through Samaria. Verse 5, so he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Jesus is avoiding a confrontation here. I want you to notice in verse 1, it says that when he learned that the Pharisees had learned that he was making so many disciples, he left, right? Well, the Pharisees and him had sort of a contentious relationship. We've talked about that before, but, but they were always kind of getting into it with each other, right? And, and they're fighting and they're, they're, uh, they're squabbling about things. And the Pharisees are jealous of Jesus. They don't like that he's getting so much attention. And he knows that his time has not yet come. It's not time to face off with the Pharisees like he will in his final weeks. It's not time for him to do those things yet. And so he leaves. He gets out of town for a little bit. He says, well, I'm going back to Galilee for a little bit. I'll get away from Judea, right? Maybe even he was avoiding something uh, entirely different. Maybe like John chapter 6 when they came and tried to make him a king by force, right? Maybe he's getting so popular that he knows that they're going to try to do something like that. And he says, I just got to get out of here. He's avoiding a confrontation. And it looks like kind of a weird situation, right? Because it says he had to pass through Samaria. He had to. Now, I don't know, um, how many of you love maps? That's what I thought. Okay. So, uh, you know, I don't spend a whole lot of time looking at maps, but, you know, every once in a while I will poke my, you know, Bible open to the map section and take a, take a little peek. Oh, this guy. Yes. All right. I love it. So, so look, you know, maps are, Bible geography is an important thing. And you, you learn a lot, right, from seeing where these things are and getting an idea. And so what you need to understand is Judea is to the south, right? Galilee is to the north. And in between the two is Samaria. Now, the Jews would not go through Samaria. They never did, right? Because they hated the Samaritans, and we're going to get to that in a little bit. But what the Jews would do, the average Jew of the day, they would cross the Jordan River to the east, walk over, so they, they got to stay outside of that border of Samaria, and then cross back over the Jordan up in the north to make sure that they didn't actually ever touch Samaria. 
But Jesus, when he goes, it says he had to pass through Samaria. And we know that that's not true in any literal physical sense, but it is true in the sense of mission. It is true in the sense of purpose. You see, Jesus was going to Samaria for a reason. There was someone there that he wanted to talk to. And I believe that that perhaps maybe it is specifically because of just this woman that he shows up in in Sychar in Samaria. This is a, a, a pretty unique moment. And he's tired from his journey. It says he's wearied. It's about the, the sixth hour. Now, that's probably noon. Um, about six hours after sunrise is probably what we're talking there. So you can imagine uh, being in a, a little bit of an arid environment there. The sun is out, right? Uh, you're in noonday heat. And you are, uh, you've been walking probably since sunrise, you know. And you've, you've been trucking up the way. And you're hiking. And you're tired. And you're sweaty. And, and the sun is beating down on you. And you get to this well. And uh, Jesus says, well, <laughs> this is a good spot as any, right? And he sits down on Jacob's well. I want you to notice something here. He could be grumpy. (laughs) How many of you get to that point, right? You're tired and you're grumpy and, and the things of this life get in your way. Uh, he could be sleep deprived, right? He's, he's probably hungry. It says the disciples are going in to get some food for them. So he hasn't eaten yet. And he's, and, and he's in all these sort of things. But notice that Jesus does not let any of that circumstance affect his character. He does exactly what he needs to do when he needs to do it in spite of all the other circumstances. A lot of times where we get in trouble is we are so focused on ourselves, we forget that the people around us are going through the same things and sometimes even harder things. We have tunnel vision and we act selfishly, but Jesus always acted out of love. And so he sits by this well, the disciples go into town to get some food, and he waits for her. And in John chapter 4, verse 7, it says this. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. (laughs) For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. In from the city, out from the city, I guess I should say, comes a woman. Now, we need to stop just there for one moment, and I need to probably try to help you to understand the environment that these people were living in at at the time. You see, according to Pharisaical tradition, uh, most Jews would not speak to a woman publicly. Now, I'm... I'm not advocating for that. I think that's wrong. (laughs) We're going to get into more of that in just a minute. But I need you to understand what kind of an environment they were living in. They would not speak to a woman publicly. Men. Not even their own daughters. Not even their own wives. They would ignore them in public. This is men time. You need to sit over there and be quiet. That's the idea and the uh, the attitude that these uh, Jews had towards women in the first century. 
Some of the Pharisees, even in their uh, ever painful attempts to look holy while inside being ravenous wolves, would even uh, refuse to look at a woman in public. And they got a little nickname uh, from some Jews who realized how stupid they were. Uh, and in the Talmud, it describes them as the, the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. That's what they called them because they were so unwilling, right? They're, they're walking down the street and they're trying to be holy looking. And they see a, a woman, uh, just standard everyday dress walking towards them. And they would go, <sighs> okay. Right? And sometimes they would hit their heads <laughs> and they would get literally hurt because they were trying so hard to look. I'm, oh, I am so holy. I shalt not even look thine direction lest I lust after thee. Right? And this is their attitude. Uh, and they, they've done this in such a dramatic and ridiculous way. Literally, they, they got made fun of. They would close their eyes. Now, I'm not a woman. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. Um, and I don't, I don't want, <laughs> ooh, shots fired. Uh, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't pretend to speak for women, uh, but I think I'm right on this. Women, you can back me up for that. If I was a woman and someone did that to me in public, that would hurt my feelings. Does that seem accurate? I mean, like if somebody acted like you were literally this devil temptress that was trying to kill them and like banged their head off of the wall and scraped themselves to pieces trying to avoid mere eye contact with you, that, that could kind of affect someone, I think, right? I mean, that would, that would mess with your psyche. And that's not one person, one time. That's most uh, Pharisees and the, the so-called leaders, right? And then a lot of other Jews would just not even talk to you. But no rabbi would be caught dead speaking to a woman in person. What would they say? You can see this attitude even in the disciples for when they return in verse 27, it says this. When the disciples came back, they marveled, marveled like at miracles, marveled what? That he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? See, they're kind of cowards too. <laughs> they marveled, but they weren't willing to say anything about it, right? think inside they knew they were wrong but Jesus you see he's a true egalitarian Jesus sees people just as who they are he doesn't take into account their sex or their race or their status or their class he looks at you as a precious child of God that he created in his own image and he sees people for who they really are and he sees the hurt and the loneliness inside of them. And I need you to understand that the gospel knows no boundaries. There are no boundaries for the gospel, not with Jesus and should not be with us. Now, listen, I, I, I have to, you know, go ahead and say there's a whole lot of impropriety that occurs in the world. And it's not it's not really appropriate, right, for for like men and, and women to be sitting down one-on-one -on -one alone for like Bible studies and stuff like that. And there's been a long history of abuse and power structures and horrible things that have occurred because of situations like that. And we want to avoid that, right? But in our efforts to avoid impropriety, let us not denigrate people. Let us not take people and make them feel like they are worth less. Let's be careful with people and let's love people and let's treat them like equals and treat them like they deserved to be treated. That's what Jesus would do. 
There's a lot of people in this world that are begging for someone to look at them. There's a lot of people in this world that are begging for someone just to see them for who they really are. And, and sometimes we are so focused in the church with maintaining our own holiness that we will not even look at those people. We pass by on the other side of the street. We close our eyes and look away. I don't want to be tainted by the world, so I will not even engage with anyone who is in the world. Friends, those people need Jesus. They need someone to come into their life and look them in the eye, uh, to reach out and to touch them and to sit beside them and to show them love and to show them that they are a real person, to treat them like they're a real person, to build them up and give them the self-esteem that they deserve, uh, to, to, to honor them, to love them. They need that. And we cannot be on our high horses so much that we're not willing to get down in the mud with them. And Jesus got in trouble for that all the time. They accused him of everything under the books. They said, you're a drunkard. You're, you're, a, you're a glutton. You eat with sinners. You touch women that you should not be touching. They claimed everything about him and he didn't care because he knew that that's where people were and they were hurting and he needed to be there with them to heal them. That's important people. But this woman was not just a woman. She was a woman of Samaria. Now, John gives us a little uh, tagline here, a little explanation, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. He writes that in there just so that we understand why that's a big deal. They, they do not associate, literally, they do not share. They do not borrow from each other. And if there's anything worse in the mind of a Jew than a woman, it's a Samaritan. That's their attitude, not mine, just so we're clear, everybody. I mean, this is their attitude, right? Like, like these guys are not even human. They're not even people. Now, if you don't understand exactly who the Samaritans are, I'm just going to give you a quick recap. When the, the um, original uh, kingdom of Israel was divided up into two uh, uh, countries, right? The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, you got Judea and you got Israel. And, and uh, uh, up in the uh, northern kingdom, the Israelites, uh, God punished them first because they were especially wicked. And he's going to punish the southern kingdom later because they're really wicked, but not quite as wicked as the northern kingdom. And so he goes and he punishes them. And how he does it is he brings in the Assyrians. He says, Assyrians, come on over here and just have your way with uh, this kingdom. Wipe them out, right? And what the Assyrians do, this was their habit, if you look into history, is they forcibly intermarried people. That's what they did, okay? Um, because in their minds, the best way to eradicate the chance of a revolt is to remove cultural identity. That's what they wanted to do. Okay, so what they did is they said, well, if these people still think they're Jews or if these people, you know, still think they're, you know, whatever, um, then they have a chance to get together and kind of coalesce and fight back against us. But what they would do is they would take 50 percent of the people, ship them off to another country that they'd conquered, take 50 percent from that country, bring them in, forcibly intermarry them and make uh, bonds happen between them. And then they would kind of lose their cultural identity. Okay, and what would happen when they did that, right, is they wouldn't have 
like a country that they were trying to fight for, right? Because mom and dad are from different countries, right? And we're just here and we're all just, this is our new country. This is our new state. We're ruled by the Assyrians. Deal with it, right? And so this is the kind of situation that would go on. And when the um, southern kingdom got back from their stint in Babylon, they came back and started to rebuild the temple. And when the Samaritans, which is the result of that union, right, those 50-50 Jews and other countries, <laughs> when, they, when they were mixed up and, and they came back to the temple, the Jews who probably did not have any purer bloodlines than they did coming out from Babylon, probably not that much different, when they came back and they said, let us help you rebuild the temple, the Jews said, no, you have no part in this. And that kind of hurt their feelings. And so they decided to kind of mess with them and destroy some of the temple building process and try to give them a bad word to the king and all this. And this hostility continues for centuries and centuries of these people fighting back and forth between each other. The Jews going up and wiping out the Samaritan temple in the northern kingdom. And and then the the, uh, Samaritans, right before Jesus is born, had just come into the temple of the Jews and thrown bones everywhere, right? To defile it on Passover day and ruin the whole holiday. And you can imagine how worked up the Jews were at the Samaritan over that, right? This is, are you kidding me? You're going to come in here and throw bones in our temple? That's disgusting. That's weird. First of all, how'd you get so many bones? But anyway, so they're, 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 they're trying to have this conversation and it's not going so well, right? They're, 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 they're fighting back and forth with each other so much so that Jesus is even, listen to the Pharisees. This is their best insult of the day. You ready? John eight forty eight. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and out of your mind or de- and have a demon? Excuse me. Yeah, are we, aren't we saying that, man, you're, you're a Samaritan. That's dirty language to them. Ouch. Call me a Samaritan? You saying I got no part in this? Wow. It's hurtful. Jews don't have any dealings with Samaritans. You heard earlier how they'd avoid even walking through their country. Well, the the Pharisees had another tradition about drinking vessels. And this is what they said about drinking vessels. If a Samaritan drank from a cup, that cup is ceremonially unclean. If they drink from it, right? Drink from it. And if you, a Jew, drink from a cup that a Samaritan has drank from, you're unclean. You're dirty. They're dirty people, and you're a dirty person for drinking after one of them. Now, that is only important so that you can understand how significant it is when Jesus looks at this woman and says, give me a drink. Give me a drink. The disciples had gone into the city to buy food, and in verse 11 it says, Jesus, she says to Jesus, look, you have nothing to draw with. You have nothing to draw with. Jesus is asking her for a drink from her cup. That's what he's asking her for. I would like to drink from the same cup that you drank from. Will you give me a drink? Now, how many of you are willing to share cups even with a family member, right? Like we're pretty picky in America about who we share drinks with. I've got exactly one person on my list that I'm okay with, and that is Trisha, right? She's over there in the nursery, and I will drink after her. That's pretty much it. Uh, Zeke and Levi, begrudgingly, I will drink after because they always steal my drinks, and they spit food in. It's nasty. I don't want to drink after Zeke. I hate that. And, 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 but he doesn't, like, ask me. You know, it's not like, hey, Dad, you know, 
do you mind if I put some bread in your drink? Now, he doesn't say that. He just does it. And then I, I'm surprised later. But look, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't really like to share drinks with, like, most people. I'm not a huge germaphobe. I'll, I'll, like, do, you know, I'll share food and drinks and stuff, you know, if I have to. But uh, I just prefer, I, I kind of like having a cup. You know what I mean? And, uh, and how many of you, like, if you had somebody that you just, like, despised, how many of you would be like, yeah, I'll drink after him? That's weird. First of all, if that's what you've been saying in your head, uh, I don't know what kind of relationship you have with your enemies. But, um, Look, this moment, I think if you're really being honest with yourself, if you understand the background and the history, I think this wrecks her. I think this opens up the door for the rest of the conversation because he's saying to her, I don't think you're dirty. I don't think you're unclean. I think you're a person. I think you're a human being, and I think that you have value and worth. And even though she's a Samaritan, even though she's from a different culture, a different ethnicity, you know, kind of background, and even though she has all of those things that are different and the fights between other people, he says, I don't have a fight with you. You're just you, and I'm just me, and we can sit by a well together, and we can drink some water together because we're just humans. Do you understand how significant it is to some people that you would just even enter their space to touch them? Do you understand what it must have been like for this woman uh, who is, is so far removed that a Jew would come over to her and ask to drink from the same vessel? He would extend himself to her like that and he would ask her that? Do you know how many people in this world would love just to be seen or just to be touched, just to have those moments? But she's not just a Samaritan, and she's not just a Samaritan woman. She's an adulteress. If you look in verse 16, Jesus says this. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, uh, oh, sorry, uh, for you have had five husbands and the one whom you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly. Now don't miss this because it sounds, it could sound like maybe she's just had a lot of marriages. That's not what we're talking about here. In the Greek, the same word for man and husband is andros. Just the same. It means the same thing. Context determines how you translate it, right? Literally, it's just most of the time when they're saying like, it's the same thing with wife, by the way. Um, gune, woman, wife, right? And, and so you, you got the same situation with both of them. But, but list, they, they're really just saying like, well, that's my man, <laughs> right? Or that, that's my woman, right? You understand what that means. Somebody says that. They say, hey, that's my woman, right? You back off. Take a step back. Um, but, but like, you know, that's, that's what they're saying. And so really what Jesus says here, just so that we kind of all clear, he says, uh, she says, I have no man, right? And he says, you're correct. You said you have no man because you have had five men and the man you have now is not yours. That's what he's saying to her. Now that, that's some pretty forward language, I mean, Jesus, do you, think he, do you think he just figured that out? 
You, you don't think maybe he knew that when he was set down on the well, who was going to come to him? This was no surprise to Jesus. Jesus knew exactly what she had been doing. He knew exactly what kind of person she was. When the, the, the Pharisees accused her, when the woman of the city, right, a harlot, a prostitute, comes to him and starts washing his feet, they say, he must not be a prophet because if he knew what kind of woman that was, he wouldn't let her touch him. Jesus did know what kind of woman that was, and yes, he did let her touch him. And this woman, he knew from the very start exactly all of her secrets, all of her skeletons in the closet, everything about her he knew, and he still wanted to drink with her. He still wanted to talk with her. He still wanted to engage with her. And just being honest... In the church, sometimes some of us would like judge people that were like that. Oh, you go hang out with her? Oh, you spend time around her? Don't you know what kind of a person she is? Yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of figured that out. That's why we're talking to her. That's why we're engaging with her because she needs to meet a savior. People need Jesus and the disciples were caught up in tradition and the disciples were caught up in appearances and the Pharisees were caught up in appearances and the Jews were caught up in appearances. But Jesus was not ashamed of this woman. And for that reason, I think she becomes unashamed of him. He had compassion on her and he loved her enough to speak with her and to touch her, and to help her. Now we need to do just a little bit of critical thought here for just a second. So we can truly, finally, get the full picture of, of what this woman really is. She's a woman, which means that the men don't speak to her. She's a Samaritan, which means that the Jews don't speak to her. And she's an adulteress, which probably means that the women aren't particularly fond of her either. And that reveals itself very clearly when you understand two things. One, there's a well in the center of that city. And two, she's drawing water in the heat of the day when nobody's there. You see, when the first century, before we had bonbons and soap operas, before we had Facebook to talk bad about each other on, the women of the city all went to draw water at the same time. The men would go down to the front gate of the city, and that's where they'd talk business and talk shop and do their whole thing, and the women would go to the wells. And the women would go there to chat, catch up with their neighbors, find out the talk of the town, enjoy a little bit of social hour. And this woman does not go there during social hour. She goes when it's just her, and she thinks she's going to be alone, but she finds Jesus there. She goes away at a place outside of town she doesn't need to go to, at a time where she thinks nobody's going to be there, because she's not just an adulterous Samaritan woman, she's an outcast. Pretty much nobody wants to talk to her. And probably if they did, they wouldn't have the nicest things to say about her. Probably especially the wife of the man she has.
And maybe that's you. Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, I'm an outcast. Nobody likes me. Nobody loves me. Maybe you got a couple of friends, some family members, but you just feel like it's not real. Maybe you're thinking to yourself that what you have done and who you are and the things that you say and think in the dark are so untenable that if we, the church here, ever found out, we would not love you anymore. If we knew who you really were inside, the things that you had done, if it was all laid out here on the stage in the middle of everyone, people would look at you differently. If that's you, I want you to know that Jesus would not think that way. I want you to know that Jesus would sit with you and he would drink with you. He would share a vessel with you and he would look at you like you were the most beautiful person in the whole world. And I'm sorry if somebody has ever done differently. Because that's not what Jesus would do. You understand that this woman was alone. I wonder how long it had been since she had talked to somebody in a real way. I wonder how hungry she was for human contact. You have people here who are willing to love you like that. You don't have to hide. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be ashamed because Jesus loves you. And we do too. It says in John chapter 4, verse 28, and I wish I could tell you the whole rest of the story. We don't have any more time, but, but, but go home and read John chapter 4 if you want the full picture. Here's what he says in verse 28. The woman left her water pot. She's in such a hurry to get out of there, she drops the water pot. Now, they've had more conversations since then, but listen what she does. She goes into the city, and she said to the people, Come and see a man who told me all the things I have ever done. This is, this is not the Christ, is he? They left the city, and they were coming to him. Now, I want you to understand what that means for her. She's an outcast and an adulteress. What things did Jesus tell her she had done? <laughs> She goes into the city and says, listen, people, he told me everything that I've ever done. He told me the things that no one else knew. You don't think maybe that would invite some questions? She goes back into the city completely unashamed of her past, completely unashamed of who she is, completely unashamed of Jesus because Jesus touched her. She doesn't care what people think of her anymore. She is ready uh, to, uh, to put it all out on the line and to put it all out on the table because all she wants is for other people to encounter Jesus the way that she did. There is forgiveness and grace and hope in Jesus and that is where our hearts should be for the people in this community. That is what it looks like to be ready to preach in season and out of season even when it's not favorable for you, even when it doesn't look good on you, even when people are going to judge you, even when people might condemn you, even when people hate you and you're an outcast and they don't love you, preach the word. Be unashamed of Jesus because it is going to have an effect. 
And Jesus, he had every excuse in the book why he shouldn't bother talking to this adulterous Samaritan woman, but he spent the time and the energy anyway because she mattered. And there is an entire town out here full of adulterous Samaritan women who are different than you and who have different problems than you, but they are still the same soul inside as you and the same blood runs through their veins. You understand that Jesus created them to be in a relationship with him and all they are waiting for is someone to reach out and touch them. This is the result. In verse 39, from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. And so when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, but we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the savior of the world. One woman, one Samaritan, one adulteress, one outcast changed an entire city. Won't you do the same? Won't you be unashamed for Jesus? Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, for your word, for your truth. Thank you, Father, for a Savior who loves us, God, and doesn't look at what we've done in the past, but looks at what we could be in the future. Thank you, Father, for being a a loving and compassionate God. I pray that you teach us to be like you. God, that we could love you, serve you. God, that we could be unashamed of you and do what you've asked us to do. Father, I pray we would capture some of that boldness. God, lay everything on the table and just serve you. I ask it in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Movement Christian Church's sermon podcast. Want to learn more about us? You can do that by visiting our website at movementchristianchurch.com or on our app available on iOS and Android devices under Movement NC.